Welcome back to a uh, special edition of The Kitchen Table. Today, guys, we're going to let you listen to a interview from a FDNY firefighter, Mr. Tim Brown, that was actually at the attacks on 9-11 in 2001. Um, he is being interviewed by a Shelly Sonstein um, in New York, uh, courtesy of Q104.3, and it's about 50 minutes, but I highly recommend you guys, especially on the eve of 9-11, prior to all the celebrations that are going to happen tomorrow, and when I say celebrations, I, I mean the uh, events that we're going to have that will honor everyone that was lost on that day. There's going to be documentaries on TV. There's going to be flag ceremonies. There's going to be all kinds of events to honor this and pay our respects to those that we lost. So I, I highly suggest to y'all that prior to engaging in any of those events, please take a listen to what Tim Brown has to say. Most of you that are listening here may not even have been alive when these attacks happened on September 11th of 2001. Some of us that were around, you can probably vividly remember exactly what you were doing. His story is touching. There's words that he uses that just hit me like a, like a Mack truck. And one of the words um, is love. And so I really want, like you guys, to take a listen to it. And it takes about 50 minutes, but you will get a better understanding of what actually took place and what it means to not just be a policeman, fireman, EMT, paramedic, first responder, but to be a good person and help those that need help. I'm going to give you a little history on, on Tim Brown. Tim Brown was a 20-year, highly decorated FDNY firefighter. And on September 11th, he came super close to death multiple times. Um, not just once, not twice, but, but several times. And uh, on September 11th of 2001, Tim was a supervisor for, the, for Mayor uh, Giuliani's office, the uh, Office of Emergency Management. And that department was comprised of uh, top... New York City firefighters, police officers, and many other representatives from the New York City Health Department and the Environmental Office. So just before 9 a.m. on t September 11th, 2001, Tim was going through his early morning routine at Seven World Trade Center, reading his newspapers and eating his daily breakfast, and then suddenly the power went out. From that point on, I'll let Tim tell his story. At the very end, you'll hear Miss Sonstein ask him a few questions that I think are important for all of us to listen to. Um, he has some great explanations of why. Why him? Why not him? And so please enjoy this episode, courtesy of Q104.3 in New York. And this is Shelly Sonstein with FDNY firefighter, Tim Brown. 
around 15 years, I guess, when 9-11 uh, occurred, a little more than that, 18 years. And uh, I was detailed into the mayor's office of emergency management. So what that means is I, I kind of took off my fire helmet and I put on a tie and I reported to, uh, to work in the mayor's office of emergency management, was, which was located at Seven World Trade Center. Uh, within that group, the mayor's office of emergency management under Mayor Rudy Giuliani, uh, I was promoted to the supervisor of field operations position. Uh, what we did is we responded throughout the city uh, and represented the mayor at various emergencies, disasters, uh, to ensure that it was mitigated in the uh, uh, quickest way possible. It was a very successful program that Mayor Giuliani uh, established. Um, and within our group, we had firefighters, police officers, uh, DEP experts, uh, Department of Health experts. So we were able to address uh, um, all kinds of different things that may happen in a city as massive as, as New York City. So our office was Seven World Trade Center. Uh, I drove in that morning. I normally got in a little before 8 a.m. Uh, and that gave me a little bit of time to catch up on the news. We didn't have smartphones then or anything like that. Uh, we had, I think we had Blackberries. Um, so I would always pick up the newspapers and read through all the New York newspapers to ensure that I was up on what was happening in the city uh, that day. So I took the newspapers, I went, I, I parked my car in Vesey Street. I had an un undercover, uh, like a police car, undercover police car. And our office was the 23rd floor of Seven World Trade, but I always stopped on the third floor first, which was the cafeteria. And uh, I sat down there with my newspapers. I had my Cheerios and some juice uh, and some hot tea. And that's uh, what I did every morning. And I read through the newspapers. Uh, and then I would go upstairs around 9 o'clock. Um, of course, that didn't happen quite that way on the day of September 11th. I was sitting there reading the newspapers, eating my Cheerios when uh, the power went out in the building. Very unusual for that to happen in a modern high-rise building in New York City. Hmm. And then five seconds later, the power in the building came back on. And I knew that we were on generator power, that we had lost our main feed into the building, and that the cause of that was probably something fairly substantial. But I did not know what had really happened. When the power went out, the people who were sitting at the glass, so this would be the, the south side of Seven World Trade Center, which faces the north tower of, uh, or tower one of the World Trade Center, which was the first building to be hit. The people who were sitting there eating their breakfast all at once stood up and started running by me toward the exit. And I had to stop one young lady, uh, like physically stop her and grab her by the shoulders and look in her eye and say, what happened? And she said a plane hit the, the tower. And, and that was the first I knew of it. Okay. Uh, time to get a game, game face, right? Time to, this, this is us. Um, but it was not so, it wasn't unheard of, I would say. In the past, we had 
had planes hit high-rise buildings in New York City before. And automatically, I think most people thought it was probably some uh, pilot had a heart attack flying a small plane by himself and went off course and hit the tower. Pretty bad, but, but not unheard of. And okay, so I went up to the 23rd floor. I wanted to ensure that uh, our other parts of our operation were going full activation. So I stopped in our, uh, uh, what we call our watch command, which was our listening center, our dispatch center. Uh, and uh, Mike uh, Lee was the supervisor there. And I saw Mike, their, their phones were blown up, their uh, radio, all the radios, the police and fire and everybody else's radios were all screaming. Uh, and in the midst of this, Mike and his team had to make about 150, 200 phone calls for a full activation of our emergency operations center. So I, I kind of gave Mike the uh, full activation question and he, he nodded, he gave me the thumbs up, yep, full activation. Uh, they were on it, they're professionals. I left them and I went into our emergency operations center and uh, the supervisor there, Mike Berkowitz, uh, was already at the podium uh, uh, powering up this uh, massive Star Wars emergency operations center that was brand new that we had practiced and drilled and practiced and drilled with. And he was powering up all the screens and the computers uh, so that we would have a full activation, bringing in people from city, state, federal agencies, uh, private sector partners, so that we could manage this unfolding disaster that was occurring across the street from our building. Mike gave me the thumbs up and I ran to my desk and I grabbed three radios, a police radio, a fire radio, and my OEM radio. And I went down to the street and I went to my car, took off my dress jacket and my tie and my dress shirt. And I threw on a mayor's office windbreaker and my heavy leather boots and a stupid green helmet they made us wear so people knew who we were. We're trained as firefighters that you can that you should always look at three sides of a building that's being compromised before you go in the building, so you have a better size up in your in your head. And, and I wanted to do that this morning. I wanted to take a second and just try to look at three sides of the tower. I ran up this exterior staircase from the street level to the uh, uh, plaza level. It was one story up, and that staircase later became known as the survivor staircase, which uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of people ran down that staircase the opposite way to get away from the towers. And that staircase now is preserved in the 9-11 museum. But I was on it very early. Uh, I ran up uh, onto the plaza and I ran in between uh, I think it was five or six World Trade Center and, and, and one World Trade Center. And there was an overhang that protected me, so I wasn't worried about debris or anything else crushing me. And I went out and I looked over the plaza, which was now between the this plazas between the towers. And 
I looked out over the plaza and it was strewn with debris that was on fire and smoke. And if you remember the video of all the paper floating down that used to be up in the upper part of the, you know, in the offices. And when the plane went through and knocked all that paper out, it was just floating down. And that's kind of the scene that I saw. I began to question my assumption that it was a small plane at that point, but still unsure. I ran into uh, the North Tower at that plaza level. And in order to get to the fire command station, you had to go down an escalator to the street level, the lobby at the street level, where they were. And that escalator was being accessed by hundreds of office workers who were evacuating the building. So it was kind of looked like a funnel. All these people were trying to get on the escalator and go down so they could go underground and get out so they wouldn't get hit uh, by debris. And I noticed something in that moment uh, that has stayed with me and will stay with me forever. Uh, I noticed what people were not doing. They were not pushing, screaming, kicking, trampling each other. In fact, it was the opposite. They were helping each other. If you were obese or pregnant or injured or disabled, there would be four or five office workers, not policemen or firemen. These were just regular people who took the time to help each other. And I said in my mind, I said, no matter what happens today, we're going to be okay because that's the true human spirit. We help each other. We love each other. We help each other when someone's down. We reach down, right? We reach down and we pick them up and we help them. And not realizing what we were facing, it, it gave me a little bit of comfort in that moment. I got into the funnel of these people to get on the escalator and I got on the escalator and I started going down and I looked out over the lobby of the North Tower and there were hundreds of firefighters awaiting their orders to go up. And just imagine this in your mind, hundreds of firefighters with their turnout coats on and they all had the yellow stripes, reflective stripes on them. And I got a chuckle because I now understood why the cops called us bumblebees. Because when we all get together, it looks like a hive with the yellow stripes. And that's exactly what I thought of, you know, kind of from their perspective for a change. And I, I had a little chuckle in that. I got to the bottom of the escalator and standing right in front of me was a bumblebee. And I looked up at his face and it was my friend Chris Blackwell, who I had worked with in Rescue 3, the Bronx Harlem Rescue, special operations for years. And not only did I work with him in Rescue 3, but we worked on the same shift. So we were together an awful lot. He was really like my blood brother. You know, he became like a, a blood brother to me. And we had done so much together. We had helped so many people and saved so many lives together. And uh, uh, we, were the, uh, we were the Bronx Harlem guys. We weren't the Manhattan guys. So we were the guys that didn't shave. You know, we didn't wear the tie. We didn't uh, maybe wash our face all the time. We were kind of the dirty, dirty guys or whatever. But if you were trapped in a fire or a building collapse, we were the guys who wanted to come get you. And that was Chris. And when Chris 
went home at night, he was a paramedic in Connecticut. So all Chris did with his whole life was save people's lives. Whenever we had a bad fire or car accident or building collapse with victims, especially young victims, we always tried to put that person in Chris's hands because we knew in his hands they had the best shot at living. So that was my friend Chris. I came to the bottom of the escalator and we were right in front of each other and we, we always greeted each other the same way no matter what. We came to each other like this, we went up, we stood at attention. He always had the unlit stub of a cigar in his mouth and he would go like this and take the cigar out of his mouth. We both leaned into each other, kissed on the lips. He, we both went back up to attention and he put the cigar back. We did that every time we saw each other because we loved each other. Also because it freaked all the firemen out. We thought it was pretty funny. So I greeted Chris exactly this way in the lobby of the North Tower. My job was to go to the command station in the lobby. His job was to go up. Chris said to me, Timmy, this is really bad. I said, I know, Chris, be careful. I love you. And he said, I love you too. And what did he do after he said, Timmy, this is really bad, which is unusual for us to say to each other. He turned around and he went in the stairwell and he went up and he knew he said it to me. He knew it to me. This is really bad. He still went in that stairwell and he still went up to save the lives of people he did not know to fulfill the oath he took the first day he was sworn in to become a New York City firefighter. I heard someone yell my name across the top of the bumblebees. Timmy! And I looked to my left and towering above all the other bumblebees was my best friend, Captain Terry Hatton, Captain of Rescue One, the Manhattan Rescue, the guys that did shave and did wear their ties. And Terry was the captain because Terry was that good. Not only did he have a reputation as a highly decorated, uh, very courageous, very brave, very daring firefighter and fire officer, but Terry was really smart too. And he was always four or five steps ahead in his mind where most other people were. Terry was uh, assigned or appointed as the captain of rescue one because he was that good and because they were mentoring him to one day be the chief of the fire department. Um, that's how much everyone respected him, whether it was down rank or up to the chief of the department or the commissioner. Terry was highly respected. Terry was also six foot four and with his boots and helmet on was six, seven, six, eight. And so when he yelled my name, I could see him clearly across the top of people. And I ran to my best friend and he had a Halligan in his right hand and he had the light in his left hand and he spread his arms out like this. And 
I ran into his arms and he wrapped his arms around me and he squeezed me tight to his chest, tight. And he kissed me on the cheek and he said, I love you, brother. I may never see you again. And I blew it off. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, Terry, whatever. Because we had done so many of these things together. We had been in so many bad places together, and we always came out. Um, uh, you know, we crawled through the rubble of Oklahoma City bombing together. We went through so many building collapses in, in New York City and, and horrific fires where Terry taught me how to be a really good, aggressive New York City fireman. Um, but Terry was the smart one. Um, and he was thinking all those steps ahead. Um, I love you, brother. I may never see you again. And he kissed me on the cheek. And he turned around and he grabbed his men from Rescue One and they went in the stairwell and they went up. They fulfilled their oath. Uh, I know, I'll go ahead a little bit here with them because I know from talking with people, I, I didn't hear this myself, but uh, Rescue One somehow got elevators working or an elevator working and they made it to the 83rd floor of the North Tower where they were fighting the fire and saving people's lives. When there was an interior, more localized collapse before the big collapse and Terry and his men were trapped up there and Terry was yelling into his radio uh, uh, what no firefighter ever wants to say or hear in their career. Mayday, 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 rescue one is trapped. Mayday, 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 rescue one is trapped, 83rd floor. Mayday, mayday, mayday. And it was told to me that it was specifically Terry's voice that was yelling those words. Um, some people I know heard him yelling it. Uh, um, I, I did not, or I would have been running up the stairs. Um, and uh, I know one of his men, David Weiss, uh, firefighter David Weiss, made it down to the lobby uh, uh, of the North Tower, and his head was uh, full of blood. But he was able to get himself out, and he was begging firefighters to go with him back up to rescue, rescue one, right? Rescue, rescue one. That's like, that's like who who rescues the. Delta Force, or who rescues the Marines, or or who rescues the Navy SEALs, right? They're the best. But when they're trapped, what do you do? Some people went back with David up in the North Tower, uh, and they were all killed in a big collapse. Uh, and, and some firefighters made it out who heard him uh, say those words. So um, I know those were Terry's last moments in rescue one's last moments and uh, captain patty brown my other best friend uh, also who made a phone call a legend in the new york city fire department uh 
and made a phone call from the 35th floor a landline to the fire department dispatcher, which is recorded. That's how we know he did it. Um, that recording is in the museum also. Uh, but my, my guess is, I can't prove this, but I'm, I, I'm, I can deduce this, that Patrick did hear Terry yelling for help because he was close enough in the upper floors. And uh, I'm sure that Patrick and his men were running up the stairs to try and save Rescue One, who was trapped. Terry and Patrick and me were boys. We all, you know, we, we hung out together. Uh, we had dinner together in Manhattan and things like that. And uh, you know, they were my two best buddies and we all loved each other. So if Patrick heard Terry yelling for help, he was running up those stairs as fast as he could. Um, a firefighter came running into the lobby of the North Tower, which is Tower One, has the antenna on top because it gets confusing. In fact, it gets so confusing that someone took a magic marker and wrote on the fire command station, North Tower, Tower One, because it was so confusing. A firefighter came running into the lobby where we were yelling that uh, another plane hit the South Tower. Uh, and uh, that's the first we heard of it. The leadership of the city, the fire department, the police department, EMS, mayor's office, huddled up and decided how we were going to split our forces to manage the second biggest disaster in the history of the city of New York that's occurring at the same time as the first biggest disaster ever in the history of the city of New York. Both occurring at the same time, right next door to each other. It was decided that myself and Assistant Chief Donald Burns would go to the South Tower to open up that command station and to take charge of that disaster. Chief Burns, Assistant Chief of the Fire Department, 41 years in the New York City Fire Department. If you looked up in the dictionary, Irish Fire Chief, and there was an image there, it would be his face with the round face with the red rosy cheeks. He had the lines in his face. I call them lines of knowledge and experience from the long cold nights at fires throughout his career in New York City. He was very highly respected. He was from the outer boroughs, so he had a little bit of a thicker New York accent. And he only talked out, only one side of his mouth moved when he talked. This side stayed closed, this side moved. And he talked really fast. And I, as we were running, and he was my friend. And as we were running over there, I said, Chief, what do you need me to do? He said, Timmy, there's not much you and I can do. I've ordered the fifth alarm, another 250, 300 firefighters. They're coming, but they're not going to be here for a while. The first fifth alarm is going to the other building. So do your best and be careful. It's just us. And I saluted him. And a woman came running, screaming to us because we were the first one, first, first responders to run into the South Tower. And she was yelling, uh, that there were people trapped in an elevator 
And so Chief Burns gave me the look with his eyes and the nod, like, go. He went to the command post. I followed this woman around to the elevators of the South Tower, the elevator lobby. And she took me to one specific elevator car. And the hoistway doors were open so you could see into the shaft. But the elevator car had not come down all the way. So you could just see at the top of the opening. You could see into the elevator car. So you could see all the people's feet who were trapped in the elevator. And they were screaming. And I remember seeing the men's jacket, the shirt sleeve in, the, in a jacket, as they were reaching down to try and pull the car down some more and get some room. Enough room so they could slide out. What I didn't know at the time was that this elevator car had just free fallen 70 floors because the plane snapped the cable. But the emergency brakes on the elevator worked properly and stopped it from crashing into the, the concrete pit below it. But those emergency brakes were on tight now. So there's no way you can move the car with human strength. And they were screaming because not only had they taken that free fall, but the elevator pit below them was full of jet fuel that was on fire and they were right above it. So they were getting burned and they were trapped. Big hero firefighter Tim in this moment is useless because I'm not a fireman, I'm a mayor's office guy. I felt, yeah, useless. I turned to see if I could see something. I looked over, I told people to start bringing me fire, fire extinguishers. We'll try and put the fire out. Uh, we tried to put the fire out, it's not going out, jet fuel fire. Uh, I turned and to just see if I could see something to help or jar my mind. And my shoulder hit a person. I looked over, it was a bumblebee. And I looked up at his face and it was my friend, Mike Lynch, who I had worked with in, in the Midtown in Times Square in 1991. And I knew Mike as a very competent firefighter. He could see the scene that was on, in front of us. I mean, it, it, it was happening right there in front of us. And this all happened in a, in a matter of seconds or a minute or something. And, and Mike put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Timmy, I got it. Three words between firefighters who know each other, who have worked together, who have trained together, who know each other's abilities. Those three words, I got it, meant a lot of things because he could see what was happening. But Mike was actually a firefighter. And what does that mean? It means he had the training, the experience, the tools and equipment because he bought a whole fire truck with him. And he had all his gear on. And the intestinal fortitude to save the lives of those people. And I'll just break away for a second here. Mike, um, I, I want to
about a, a, a week or so or two weeks after 9-11, I wanted to go out to Michael's house, to his home in Long Island, uh, because I wanted his wife, Denise, to hear directly from me uh, what Mike was doing in the last moments of his life. They had three little kids at home. Uh, but I wanted her to know and to teach her children what a hero their dad was. And I told her when Mike said to me, Timmy, I got it. He may as well have had angels wings coming out of his back because he was the angel sent to save the lives of those poor people. Um, as Mike and I were doing that little interaction in front of the elevator car over my radio, uh, urgent, 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 third plane incoming, take cover, confirmed by the FBI, impact imminent, urgent, 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 get in the stairwells, impact imminent, third plane incoming, confirmed by the FBI. I said, Mike, I gotta go. You've gotta do this. They need you, they don't need me, I gotta go. And I went to the command post and I found a landline phone that was working. And I picked it up and I dialed zero for operator. And she picked up right away. And I said, I'm with Mary Giuliani in the World Trade Center and I need to talk to the White House immediately. And she tried to get through and she couldn't get through. I said that I need, I need to talk to the Pentagon. And she said the Pentagon's under attack also. And that's the first we knew of it. Our situational awareness was uh, very tunnel vision. We were just in our own little spot. I wound up talking with New York State Emergency Management Office, and they assured me that the fighter jets were coming to protect us overhead, which is what I was trying to get assurance of. And it gave us a moment of, uh, okay, at least we don't have more planes maybe coming in and crashing into us. And that will allow us to save as many lives as we can. The lobby was now filling up with people who were badly injured, bloody, broken, burned. And just put yourself in that their position for a minute. Um, imagine coming down 70, 80 floors around and around, 70 or 80 floors around and around and around a dark, smoky, wet stairwell. And you're coming down and down and down and down and you finally hit the lobby door and the door opens up and it's bright light and you see police officers and firefighters and rescue personnel, EMTs, whatever. And um, what do you do? You, you made it, right? You, you survived. You made it. Thank God there are people here to help me. And you collapse on the floor. And this was happening a lot. There were injured people all over the lobby of the, of the South Tower and they were impeding our evacuation. So Chief Burns said to me, Timmy, go get the paramedics and get them in here. We've got to start, we've got to triage in here. We've got to get these people out of here. We've got to start getting them out of here. You know, we knew they weren't safe and, and they were hindering our evacuation. And that's why I left the South Tower. I ran out the door. Now this is the south side 
of the South Tower, Tower 2, the second one to be hit. Things were crashing down to the ground on Liberty Street, as well as humans were crashing to the street and uh, exploding. The firefighters, police officers who were trying to come in were trying to time it so that they could run from the other side of the street and get in the door of the tower without getting hit by debris or other. And so one of the companies from Brooklyn, uh, one of the engines from Brooklyn, the guys were running in and one of the firefighters was crushed by a woman who jumped or fell or pushed or however it happened. Um, but when I, when I ran out the doors onto Liberty Street, the first thing I saw, out of, I, it's burned into my memory right there, is the two bodies dead in the street including the firefighter and his fellow firefighters were tugging at thinking they could still save him. Someone yelled my name in that moment and I looked up and it was firefighter Mike Lynch, the angel from the elevator. And he was trying to take the motor for the hearse tool, the jaws of life, off his truck, ladder four. And it's very heavy. And so he yelled my name to go help him get the motor off. And so I started running toward Mike. And before I got to him, uh, another firefighter got there and helped him. And so he waved to me and I waved to him. And that's the last time I saw my friend Mike. They found his body at that elevator, exactly where I said he would be, at that elevator car in the lobby with, with the jaws of life, which he was using to open that space up to get people out of the elevator. And we know for sure, we can prove that Mike saved two women who got out uh, and identified Mike as the, the fireman with the red four in his helmet from ladder four. Uh, we think there's a third one, but we haven't confirmed it. But we know Mike saved at least two people uh, before the whole thing came down. And that's where they found him with the tool and with the other people that didn't make it out. Um, so Mike and I waved to each other on Liberty Street. And I ran over to West Street. Uh, uh, and I found the paramedics under the South Pedestrian Bridge going across West Street. And it was, by just by chance, it was the EMS... Uh, 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 special operations guys who had come to Oklahoma City with us as part of the FEMA urban search and rescue team. So I knew them and I knew the captain Charlie Wells was my very, very good friend. And I said to Charlie, uh, we need to get you guys in the lobby and under normal circumstances, you would never do that. The police officers and firefighters would bring the patient to the triage area. So they would, they would carry them over to West Street and that's where EMS would tend to them. 
The difference here was that all the police officers and firefighters were going up the stairs. So we had, we kind of moved all of our components forward. So we needed to move triage into the lobby of the South Tower. And so Charlie said, all right, give me a second. We've got to get our helmets and stuff. So they grabbed all their stuff. They grabbed all their medical equipment. Uh, and we threw, we piled it all on the stretcher and myself and Captain Charlie Wells and two other paramedics ran with the stretcher to go back into the South Tower. We were on the sidewalk running along the south wall of three World Trade Center, which was the Marriott Hotel, which adjoined two World Trade Center, the South Tower. So we're running as close to the building as we can so we don't get hit by anything. And the tower was set back on the sidewalk um, 30 feet or 50 feet. And so we kind of came around the corner of the Marriott and we were 20 feet, I estimate, from going in the door in the South Tower to go into the lobby when the building collapsed. So we were, we were completely under it. And it, it, because we were outside, you could hear it. And it was so loud that there was no question at all. Everybody knew. And the first thing that we heard was a very loud crack of steel breaking. In fact, it was so loud that it reverberated through the canyons of lower Manhattan. And right after that, it was a progressive collapse. So, as every floor couldn't hold the weight of what was collapsing. And, um, I mean, very loud. So we knew what it was. I turned on my heel. I yelled to the paramedics, follow me. We're, we're trained as firefighters. You can never outrun a building collapse. It, it moves too fast. And it will catch you. So I knew our only chance was to get protection over our heads. And we had just passed the doors into the Marriott Hotel. So I ran back to the doors to the Marriott Hotel. It was the tall ship's restaurant that was in the lobby of the Marriott. And so I opened the door to the tall ship's restaurant, ran in, and it was as clear as this room I'm sitting in right here now. And like that, it went pitch black. Tower two was collapsing on the Marriott and the Marriott was collapsing around us. You couldn't see, you couldn't breathe from the dust. You couldn't hear anything because it was so loud. I compare it to the, the noise to sitting on a tarmac at JFK surrounded by 747s that are full blast in your ears. That's what it sounded like to me. I hit the floor. I knew that my only chance at survival from experience was to get a vertical column and hold on to it. We had found people over the years who survived building collapses were near the vertical column because that's the strongest part of the building. And, and uh, sometimes we find survivors that near those columns. So I just started crawling uh, and I found the column. I, I also believe that I was led there. 
this all happened in, in just seconds. And I just, it was a huge vertical column and I just grabbed onto it and I held on as tight as I could. Um, my legs were up in the air. It was, the, the air was being forced out of the building as it collapsed. And it was trying to blow me out into the street. And I knew if I let go of this column, I was dead for sure. Although I was probably dead for sure anyhow. Um, you couldn't see, you couldn't hear, you couldn't breathe. I'm trying to hold on with all my strength. I don't know how I held on. Um, and I thought how unfair it was that I wouldn't be able to hold my family one more time. And I just waited to be crushed. Um, and just like that, it was over. It stopped. The noise stopped. The wind stopped. You still couldn't breathe. I was trying to put my head in, into my shirt to use it as a filter. Um, and I just wanted to get the heck out of there. Uh, I started crawling back toward the door I had come in on Liberty Street. Uh, but of course, the building was collapsed now, so there was no like doors or walls or anything left. It was just all mounds of steel and rubble. And I came across a, a truck with a diesel motor that was running. I specifically remember this, and to this day, I don't know what it was. The headlights were on. And you would think I would recognize it if it was a fire truck, because that would have made the most sense. But it wasn't a fire truck. Maybe it was a police emergency truck. I don't know. Couldn't see. But all I could think of in that moment was that it was a truck bomb, because we were just thinking they're coming at us with everything they have. And so I turned around and I went back deeper into the Tall Ships restaurant toward the lobby of the Marriott Hotel. And I probably wasn't thinking completely straight at this point. I was just trying to get out and live. And I came across a metal roll-down gate that was down. But I was determined to go through it. So I put my fingers underneath the metal gate to lift it up. And I lifted it up about two inches and all the fingers came from the other side. And we lifted it up together and there was a group of firefighters and civilians they were, who they were rescuing who were trapped on the other side of this roll down gate. And uh, I said, we have to go that way. There's a bomb, there's a bomb. And they, they said, we can't go that way. There is no that way, it's gone. The collapse had come through the lobby of the Marriott Hotel, right where they were, and killed half the firemen and the civilians they were with. Now, this group who survived that part of it were standing on a ledge that was maybe four feet wide. Behind them was a seven-story drop where the where the collapse had come through and in front of them where we were was the metal road roll down gate so they were trapped between seven stories down and the metal road roll down gate um so we turned around the group of us turned around and we started going back and, and, i mean it's it's pitch black you can't breathe your your nose and your mouth and your ears and your eyes are are, are full of uh, dust caked um, 
we just started going back the other way and uh, uh, one, one of the women we were with uh, saw a very bright light coming in from the outside uh, and uh, it turned out it was a firefighter uh, and she saw his light and he was yelling to us to, to come to him. He could see us uh, uh, in, in the rubble and so he was just yelling, come this way, come this way and so we formed the chain and we went over all the rubble and uh, we went to his light. Um, I ran for, for whatever crazy reason, all I could think of was jump in the Hudson River and swim to New Jersey and get away from this. Uh, I tried to go through one of the buildings in Battery Park City to get to the river, but I couldn't get through it. I remember trying to smash the glass with a chair, uh, but the glass was too thick. I couldn't smash it. Um, and I, I was still not in the right mind. I was in the, in the flight fight flight mode still at this point, just trying to live. But what snapped me back was my boss, Calvin, screaming for help on the OEM radio. And, and that brought me back to reality. He was trapped. And so I turned around and I ran up West Street where I saw uh, Commissioner Feehan and I saw uh, Chief Downey from Special Operations and they waved at me as I ran by them and they yelled to me, be careful. Uh, and, and I waved back to them, not knowing that they would both be dead within 10 minutes. Um, I made it up to Calvin where he was like Vesey Street and West. And uh, the firemen and the paramedics had already got him out of the rubble and he was sitting on a ledge. And we were all covered grave. Calvin is a very dark-skinned black man and I in that moment I, I just thought how interesting it was that we were all gray we were all the same color gray in that moment so the paramedics were tending to him and he was okay they were going to take him to the hospital he was fine he was talking uh, and then my bigger boss uh, John Odermatt who's a one-star police chief and and the number two commissioner in OEM grabbed me and said, uh, Timmy, the mayor wants us. We have to go. You got to come with me. Calvin's okay. You have to come with me. And so I followed, uh, John, we ran up, um, maybe Greenwich or one of those streets and, and, uh, the people behind us started screaming and I turned around to see why they were screaming. And I watched, the antenna of the North Tower just lean over a little bit and the building disappear. I knew a lot of my friends were in that building and I kept running just so I could live and the, the dust and the debris covered over us again. Um, but I made it out of that one uh, and uh, made it north up to and I don't remember this part of it, really. I, I, all I know is I made it up to Farrakhan and Houston, where the firehouse is there. And uh, that's where Mayor Giuliani had gone first. And that's where John had told me to go. So uh, 
I got in there. I, I went in the firehouse. All the trucks were gone because they were at the World Trade Center. But all the firefighters' shoes, who were probably likely now dead, were all their shoes were all over the floor where they had kicked off their shoes and jumped in their boots. And the first person I saw was Mayor Giuliani's assistant, Beth, who uh, was now one of my best friends. And uh, she was married to my best friend, Terry. And uh, we both collapsed on the floor um, because he was gone. So uh, that's it. only one answer to that, Shelley, and it begins with a capital H, him, him, because there's no way that I didn't hear, if I had heard Terry screaming Mayday, game over, I would have been running up those stairs, I ran up all 110 flights in 1993 when they bombed the buildings then I'm, I, I'm a, I was a very fit person and I can I can do 100 flights two stairs at a time you know I, I can do it so I knew I, I know that I could have gotten to Terry fairly quickly but I didn't hear him I, I didn't even know he was trapped that's one spot um, running out on the street on Liberty Street you know, why am I running around Liberty Street and not getting crushed when other people are? Uh, obviously, the collapse and finding, finding I think the biggest thing was finding the column. And that column, and I didn't know this until years later, that column that I, the vertical column I held on to, The, the wind, they, they did a study about this. It's in a book I have in my bookshelf here. Uh, they did a scientific study of that space because if you look at the photos uh, uh, of the aftermath, only one part of the Marriott Hotel is left standing, about a four or five story section, the, the, the south uh, kind of part of the, the lobby. Where, and that's where we were. And we're scratching our heads on, well, why did that stand and everything else is crushed? Um, so they did a scientific study, this volcanologist of all things, and uh, he scientifically proved that the wind in, in that tall ship's restaurant where I was, was 185 miles per hour. So how am I able to have the physical strength to hold on to a vertical column when a wind of 185 miles an hour is trying to blow me out into the street, there's only one answer for that. And it was some other kind of strength and, and some other thing that was, I, I was meant to live so many times I was meant. Why do you think you were meant to live? I know why I was meant to live. And that is to have a voice that my friends don't have. Um, that is why, as painful as this is, and you can see it in my eyes, and I, I probably have done this now 15, 20 times in the last two weeks. 
I've told this story over and over because it's so important to tell the story of the firefighters and police officers who did what Chris Blackwell and Terry Hatton and Patty Brown and all the others did. And they knew it, Shelly. They knew it. When they went in that stairwell, they still did it. Where do we find people like this who will do that and, and, and uh, honor the oath they took? Because that's what you say when you take the oath to become a first responder. Um, and to follow through, to actually follow through and demonstrate the greatest love you could ever demonstrate. It's, I mean, it's in the Bible. It's, you know, the greatest love is giving your life for someone you don't know. And it wasn't just the police officers and firefighters. It was other people for, you know, like, like at the escalator when those people helped each other. And, and, and another, I mean, there's many examples of the civilians, but the brightest one, I think, is Wells Crowder in the South Tower, you know, 24 year old kid who was a trader and he just happened to be a volunteer firefighter. And he, as far as we can tell, and I, I'm a student of this, as far as we can tell, he saved 18 people's lives. And, and, and after he did that, he stayed in the lobby to help in the lobby where I, where I was, you know? So it's not, I, I mean, certainly the police officers and firefighters and EMTs and paramedics, of course, but other people demonstrated that love also. When, uh, when Mayor Giuliani said in the days after that it was the worst day of his life and the best day of his life, I was so mad at him. And it took me years to manage that anger and to understand what he meant when he said that, and I just didn't get it, but he was right. All I was holding on to was the evil and the terror and, and the negative of it. I wasn't seeing the, the good and the love. And, and now to me, it's obvious 20 years later. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think, I think I'm okay. Um, there's so much more, but we, we can maybe do more another time but now my emotions are about shot. So. I understand. I, it's very painful. I, I can't imagine reliving, living through it and then reliving this. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Sean.